Catholic History Trek, a podcast exploring the Catholic past. Welcome, listeners, to the very first episode of Catholic History Trek, where we're voyaging into the world of church history. First, as we get going, a little bit about us. My name's Kevin Schmeising. Uh, I am a professional historian, and I have a doctorate in history about 20 years ago now. I also teach some church history, mainly for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati in its lay ecclesial ministry program. I've been doing that for about 15 years. I've written some books and some articles in the field of church history. Most of that is academic stuff, but I've done a few more popular things as well at sites like Catholic World Report. And I've also done a lot of Catholic radio, primarily through the Sunrise Morning Show, which is part of Sacred Heart Radio based in Cincinnati. And it also goes around the world as part of the EWTN Catholic Radio Network. I do a little five-minute segment every week on This Week in Catholic History. And I've been doing that for many years. In fact, I did some math on that and discovered that I've done probably about 600 of those episodes, which is hard to believe, but that's how long I've been doing it. So my co-host is Scott, and he's going to tell you a little bit about himself. So yeah, my name is Scott Schulze. I'm not as credentialed as my esteemed co-host, Kevin Schmeising. I was more on the technical side of the university campus over in the engineering and business buildings. But I've always loved history, and a post-college conversion to Christianity prompted me, like a good engineer, to compile as much data as possible and determine which denomination was the correct one to join. So, basically, whether to become Lutheran, Baptist, non-denom, whatever. So I plowed through dozens of books, listened to talks and debates on cassette tape, watched a ton of videos on VHS, so I guess that kind of dates me, anything related to apologetics or church history. And essentially started out from the position that the Catholic Church was wrong and wanted to know who was right. But as Cardinal Newman wrote, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. So in my search to determine which type of Protestant to become, ended up leading me to become Catholic. And the last point which I came around on was the veneration and devotion which Catholics give to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Which is interesting, since our first Catholic History Trek podcast episode is on a Marian topic. Yeah, so we will get into the Marian stuff in just a second. Scott, something you said uh, jogged something in my mind, which was um, you mentioned cassette tapes, and neither you nor I as a spring chicken. We're, we're not quite senior <laughs> citizens yet, but you know we're, we'll probably both date ourselves in one way or another um, before this is all over. But it reminds me of something. Um, my kids, we've got a term in our household uh, for VHS movies, which we don't have anymore because we got rid of our last VHS player or our last VHS player stopped working a few years back. Um, but they call them fat movies. That's what we call them here. <laughs> the fat movies versus the DVDs. Of course, their kids, given the um, popularity of streaming, their kids aren't going to know what DVDs are. But that's the way it goes with technology. So Scott hinted at the um, topic of this episode. So I'm not sure when this is going to hit listeners' ears, but we are recording this on December 8th, 2020, which is the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. So we were talking about doing something having to do with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and we talked about a few different ideas and settled 
on the topic of Marian titles. So these are terms of reference to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now you might say, why not just call her Mary or Mary, the mother of Jesus, as the Bible says? Um, well, there are lots of different ways down through the centuries that Catholics have kind of made Marian devotion their own. Lots of different paths um, to devotion to Mary, lots of different ways of referring to her. So I don't know, Scott, if there's ever been a count done, but I'm guessing it's not just in the hundreds, but probably in the thousands, the different ways that Mary has been referred to. So we're just skimming the surface here, but we're going to give you a few of those, talk about a few of those um, in this episode. Uh, many of these titles of Mary are associated with an ethnicity or a nationality, often with shrines in particular nations or localities. Many of them are associated with Marian apparitions, and some are associated with specific events, and we're going to give examples actually of all of those three possibilities. Many, not all by any stretch, but many of the titles of Mary, especially the best known ones, are listed in the Litany of the Blessed Virgin Mary, sometimes called the Litany of Loretto, so-called because of its connection with the house of Our Lady in Loretto, Italy. Now, if you're not familiar with the house in Loretto, well, that may be a story for another day. But this was a litany approved for public use in the church. So as far as I know, the only officially approved litany of the Blessed Virgin, approved by Pope Sixtus V in the 1500s. In that litany, one of the invocations is, Queen conceived without original sin. And this is a reference to the Immaculate Conception of Mary. So appropriately enough on her feast day, that's going to be the first title we look at in this episode. The Immaculate Conception was solemnly defined as dogma by Pope Pius IX on December 8, 1854. He said this, Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular privilege and grace granted by God in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved, exempt from all stain of original sin. So that's what the Immaculate Conception means. Now, what about the history? Well, there's a feast of the conception of Mary that goes all the way back to the seventh century in Eastern Christianity, in the Eastern Church, but that wasn't necessarily a, re uh, a recognition of Mary's Immaculate Conception, just a celebration of the beginning of her life or of her existence. There's a long history of dispute in the church, actually, about whether Mary was from the very first moment conceived without sin. There were great theologians and saints on both sides of that debate, probably most famously in the Middle Ages, Duns Scotus, representing the Franciscan side, the pro side, that is to say, arguing that Mary was immaculately conceived. And then the Dominicans, represented by the great theologian philosopher Thomas Aquinas, who either denied it or were skeptical of it, or at least had some qualifications of it. Well, the foresight, the side, gradually gained strength through the Middle Ages, and as I mentioned, was eventually solemnly defined by Pope Pius IX. One of the spurs for the popularity of the Immaculate Conception as a title of Mary was an apparition to Catherine Labore, St. Catherine Labore in 1830, in France when Mary identified herself as the Immaculate Conception. It was that apparition that gave us the popular devotion of the Miraculous Medal, which is associated with the prayer, O Mary, conceived without sin. Again, a recognition of the Immaculate Conception. In 1846, in this country, the bishops of America gathered at the Sixth Provincial Council in Baltimore, named Mary under this title, the Immaculate Conception, the patroness of the United States. And that's why 
our national church, if you will, the national shrine in our nation's capital is called the Basilica National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. There are some 81 Marian chapels, so a number of those titles of Mary reflected in the National Shrine, and the second title we're looking at comes from that shrine. It's Our Lady of Saluva. Scott, have you ever heard of Our Lady of Saluva? I would like to sit here and sound really smart and say, <laughs> yes, I do, but no, I had never heard of that one before. Well, I hadn't either. This is the one title we're covering that I had not heard of. I always like to, when I do my radio segments, I like to cover something that I don't know about so that I learn something along with the listeners, and that's what I'm doing here. Our Lady of Saluva is an example of what I mentioned earlier about an ethnic or national title for Mary. This one comes from Lithuania. So there's a Marian shrine in the small town of Saluva in Lithuania on the Baltic Sea. It dates, that shrine dates to the 15th century, but in the early 1500s, much of that area became Calvinist for a time. The church was attacked and destroyed, and the priest hid the church documents by burying them on the church grounds. When Catholics a short time later were trying to recover the confiscated property, they discovered that the documents were lost and so they couldn't prove ownership. Then in 1608, shepherd children saw an apparition of Mary near the site of the church that renewed interest in the church. The documents were discovered, Catholics proved their ownership, recovered the, the property, and a new shrine was built. And this has been a Lithuanian Catholic devotion ever since, Our Lady of Saluva. And the next title, one that Scott's going to look at, also has a kind of national background. Yes, and that country is the South American country of Ecuador, which was formed in 1830 when it broke away from Gran Colombia. Ecuador has had a strong Catholic history from the time when the first Spanish arrived in the 16th century to the presidency of Gabriel Garcia Moreno in the 19th century and up to the present, with 70% of the country being Catholic. The next Mary title is one some of our listeners may be familiar with. It is Our Lady of Good Success. This title stems from an apparition which took place in Quito, Ecuador, to a cloistered conceptionist nun, Mother Marina de Jesus Torres. And unlike some apparitions, which occur only once or a few times, these apparitions took place over a 40-year span from 1594 to 1634. When Mary visited Mother Marina... She made many predictions about the future, 300 years in the future, and Kevin, I'd like to list some of the more amazing predictions recorded in the early 1600s and ask if, you know, perhaps any of these predictions from Our Lady of Good Success came to fruition. So here they are. The Pope's infallibility will be declared a dogma of faith by the same Pope chosen to proclaim the dogma of the mystery of my Immaculate Conception. The Pope will be persecuted and imprisoned in the Vatican through the usurpation of the pontifical states by an earthly monarch. Unbridled passions will give way to a total corruption of customs because Satan will reign through the Masonic sects, targeting the children in particular to ensure general corruption. Seldom will children receive the sacraments of baptism and confirmation. As for the sacrament of penance, they will confess only while attending Catholic schools which the devil will do his utmost to destroy by means of persons in authority. There will be many and enormous public and hidden sacrileges of Holy Communion. Extreme unction will be largely ignored. The sacrament of matrimony will be thoroughly attacked and profaned. Masonry, which will be reigning at that time, 
will implement iniquitous laws aimed at extinguishing the sacrament of matrimony. Secular education will contribute to a scarcity of priests and religious vocations. The sacrament of holy orders will be ridiculed, oppressed, and despised. There will be hatred towards priests. At the end of the 19th century and throughout a great portion of the 20th century, many heresies will be promulgated in these lands. In those times, the atmosphere will be saturated with a spirit of impurity. Innocence will scarcely be found in children or modesty in women. Scarcely will there be any virgin souls in the world. Sex will find a way of introducing themselves into the very heart of homes to corrupt the innocence of children. And secular clergy will fall f- short of what is expected of them because they will not pursue their sacred duty. So, I'll ask you, Kevin, do any of these perhaps sound like something that may have happened in the past 100 years? Well, gee, uh, we could talk for a (laughs) while about those prophecies and how they've been fulfilled or not. Um, And, you know, some of those, to some extent, they require some interpretation, and that's often the case with Marian predictions. But, you know, I'll go back to the very first ones that you mentioned at the beginning of the list there, Scott, and those were pretty specific. And uh, as it turns out, you know, you ask the question, have any of these been fulfilled? Well, arguably all of them, but certainly that first one, very interesting. And it ties back to that first title that I was talking about, the Immaculate Conception. You, you said that Our Lady predicted that the first, that the Pope who defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception um, would also be, uh, was it, was it imprisoned? Was that the word that you used? Um, yeah, he will be a uh... The, so the Pope that d- proclaims it will also be uh, the one who has the dogma of papal infallibility declared right. and will so, be imprisoned in the Vatican. Right. So that's a reference, obviously, to the First Vatican Council and the dogma of infallibility, which was the same Pope, Pope Pius IX, 1869-1870, and then imprisoned at the Vatican. And that's a reference to, well, what brought the First Vatican Council to a premature close was revolution in the papal states in Italy, Italian unification and the loss of the papal states. And uh, during a period there, um, the Pope was essentially imprisoned um, within the Vatican. So those prophecies pretty specific and pretty obviously came true there in the 19th century. Uh, Our next title, back to me, is Our Lady of the Rosary, probably one that uh, many listeners are familiar with, maybe more so than a couple of the other ones we've talked about. Now, as far as I can tell, the origin, the earliest precise historical origins of the rosary are somewhat shrouded in mystery. I mean, there is a tradition that has mysteries of the rosary given to St. Dominic through an apparition of Our Lady in the 13th century. Uh, that may or may not be the start of the rosary. In any case, for certain, the rosary was promoted by Dominicans in the centuries after St. Dominic. The feast day of Our Lady of the Rosary was initially established by another title, by Pope Pius V in 1571, but then a couple of years later, it was changed to the Feast of the Holy Rosary by Gregory XI, and then later yet, the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary, Um, And that's the title that we know this feast day by today. The Queen of the Rosary was added to the Litany of Loretto, that litany I mentioned earlier, by Pope Leo XIII in the late 19th century. But in 1571, when Pope Pius V established this feast or this title, it wasn't Our Lady of the Rosary. It was something else. And Scott has that 
Yes, the feast day listed for October 7 on the Catholic calendar as Our Lady of the Rosary used to go by another name, Our Lady of Victory, renamed in 1716 by Pope Clement XI. The Victory of Our Lady of Victory was the famous Battle of Lepanto, which was won on October 7th. Ever since Muhammad had created his new religion in the early 7th century, it had been the bane of Christendom, and by the 16th century, the Mohammedan threat was the powerful Ottoman Empire, which spanned from North Africa to the Middle East and into Eastern Europe, right up to the edge of present-day Austria and Italy. But the Christian West was divided by kingdoms and states too occupied with fighting each other to care too much about the advancing threats from the East. In fact, some Catholic nations even formed alliances with the Turks to better position themselves against rival Catholic nations. And by this time, the Protestant Reformation had kicked off, further weakening Christendom, as many of the lands taken over by Protestantism gladly sided with the Mohammedans using the enemy and my enemy rationale, conveniently ignoring that the Turks weren't going to suddenly stop invading Christendom after destroying the Catholic countries. By 1566, Pope Pius V worked tirelessly to forge an alliance between the remaining Catholic states to form a resistance to the Turkish advances. By 1570, he succeeded in getting Venice and Spain to form a mutual alliance. Also in 1570, Italian colonies in Cyprus were besieged by invading Turks. By August of 1571, the last holdout on the island of Cyprus, Famagusta, had fallen. The Christians agreed to terms of surrender which would allow them to return home, but the Turkish commander, Kar Mustafa Pasha, betrayed the terms of surrender, torturing the Christian commander, Marco Antonio Bragadin, and then slaughtered or enslaved every remaining Christian from the siege. After taking Cyprus, the Turks sailed west. And after forming a fleet of galleys, galleasses, and other ships from the Papal States, Venice, Spain, Genoa, Savoy, and some of the military orders, the Holy League sailed east. In the build-up to the battle, the Pope called for all Catholics throughout Europe to pray the Rosary daily for victory. And the leader of the Holy League, Don Juan of Austria, ordered his men to avoid blasphemy, pray the Rosary daily, and go to confession before they set out to sea. On October 7th, the two sides met near Lepanto and waged the sea battle that would alter the course of history. And to give an inadequately short recap of the battle, the smaller Christian fleet won a decisive victory, which effectively brought an end to Turkish domination in the Mediterranean Sea. The accounts vary, but most estimates generally place the Turkish losses at about two to three times as many men lost, and over 10 times as many ships lost. Additionally, thousands of Christian slaves were freed as a result of the battle. The Turkish ships were rowed by Christian slaves, and in the course of the battle, when the ships would crash into each other and the soldiers would charge from one ship to another, the soldiers of the Holy League would descend into the lower decks of the Turkish ships where these Christian rowers were enslaved and would free them, and in turn, they would join and fight against their Turkish oppressors. And this victory was not merely a physical one, but also a spiritual victory. Through the Rosary and Mary's intercession, the smaller fleet of Catholic ships had managed to overcome the much more powerful and larger Mohammedan forces. And the date of this victory became the Feast of Our Lady of Victory.
Yeah, this was uh, the Battle of Lepanto, one of those key points in European history where really the idea or the reality of Christian Europe was preserved from um, Islamic invasion. And if you look at that from the perspective of later history in particular, think about the spread of Christianity or the Catholic faith in particular around the world um, during and after the age of exploration, the age of colonialism, Central and South America, Africa, Asia, all of those places where Christianity spread afterwards from Europe as its base, that would not have happened um, if, if Muslims had conquered Europe during this period. So one of those key inflection points um, in that long conflict between Christianity and Islam. And the next title we're looking at, Scott, also is evocative of that long history of conflict. Um, it's Mary Help of Christians. And that was a title that many Christians invoked during those periods of conflict uh, with Islam. Now, the title itself dates way back to the fourth century, to St. John Chrysostom, um, who used it. But during the medieval period, it uh, became a popular invocation, as I mentioned, um, for Christian soldiers and for those involved in battles between Christian forces and Muslim forces. And then in the 19th century, Pope Pius VII instituted the feast day of Our Lady Help of Christians. That was specifically in gratitude for his return to Rome after he had been captured, kidnapped essentially, and held by the dictator, the French dictator, Napoleon Bonaparte. There had been conflict between the popes, um, Pius VI and then Pius VII, and Napoleon that had led to violence in some cases. Pius VII was actually taken away from Rome and sent to France. And then, uh, as I mentioned, in gratitude for his return, he established this feast day. So just in general, kind of an invocation or a title that uh, Christians use when they feel um, besieged or embattled. And since the time that Pope Pius VII popularized this, this feast, Mary Help of Christians has become um, a popular title also that uh, churches have been dedicated to. So lots of churches, uh, Catholic churches, Our Lady Help of Christians across the world. As I mentioned, Help of Christians dating way back to the fourth century. And the next title, Scott, yours also dates way back to the early days of Christianity. For the next Marian title, I'm going to get a little fancy and speak a foreign language, but only for the title. I'm not sure I'd be able to do that for the entire section, and I'm not sure how well people would understand it. The next Marian title is Theotokos and or Mater Dei. These are both very old titles. Mater Dei is Latin and used as a name for many schools and churches. Mater is Latin for mother, as in maternity or maternal, and Deus is Latin for God. The possessive form of Deus is Dei, meaning of God, so Mater Dei would mean Mother of God. In Greek, this title of Mother of God is commonly given as Theotokos, which means God-bearer, while a more direct translation of the words Mother of God would probably be something like Mater Theu. Regardless, looking back at the history of these, the oldest reference I'm aware of for the title of Mother of God goes back to about the 3rd century in a prayer called the Subtuum. It's an ancient Marian prayer, and the Latin of the prayer is Subtuum Presidium Confugimus Sancta Dei Genetrix, Nostras De Precaciones Ne Despicias In Necessitatibus, 
sed a periculis cunctis libra nos semper, verga gloriosa et benedicta. Amen. Another prayer with the Mother of God is the Salve Regina, or Hail Holy Queen, which originated around the 11th or 12th century. At the end of this prayer is a verse and a response which are Oror pro nobis sancte dei genetrix, ut degni efficiamor promissionibus Christi. At the end of this prayer is a verse and a response. The verse goes, Oror pro nobis sancte dei genetrix, with a response of ut degni efficiamor promissionibus Christi. The versicle, Oror pro nobis sancte dei genetrix, translates to English as, Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God. This title of Mother of God is often credited to the Ecumenical Council of Ephesus held in 431 because this council denounced the heretical teachings of Nestorius, who taught that Jesus was two separate persons. Rather, Jesus is one person who possesses two natures as fully human and fully divine, and the union of these two natures is often referred to as the hypostatic union. By condemning Nestorianism, Mary could not just be called the Christ-bearer, but also by the title of the God-bearer, or Theotokos, since Mary is the mother of Jesus, and since Jesus is God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, Mary is rightly called the mother of God. Not that she's a goddess generating the divine nature of Jesus, but that she is the mother of God. Mary leads us to Jesus. This title of mother of God also affirms that the second person of the Trinity was truly incarnate among us, fully human and fully divine. Speaking of Mary leading us to Jesus, well, that leads us into the next title that I wanted to look at, which is Mystical Rose. Now, this is one that I was just kind of fascinated by. It's one I've been familiar with for a long time, but I never quite knew where it came from. And to be honest, I still don't quite know where it came from. There doesn't seem to be one definitive origin to Mystical Rose as a title for Mary, but there are various explanations of it. So I'll give just a few of those. One, the idea rose has a kind of traditional um, understanding as being the perfect flower for various reasons. And Mary is known as the perfect model of sanctity or the Christian life. Also, rose, of course, is famous for its, the sweetness of its scent. And sweetness is also a quality traditionally associated with Mary. Think of, for example, a prayer you've already mentioned a couple of times, Scott, the Salve Regina, the uh, Hail Holy Queen, um, the, near the end of that, there's this series of um, addresses to Mary, O Clement, O Loving, O Sweet Virgin Mary. The other interesting connection here is the metaphor of Mary as rose. We're very familiar with the image of the church as a vineyard and of Christ as the vine and we are the branches. This comes, of course, straight out of scripture, many parables in the Gospels. Uh, refer to Christ under this image. And as it turns out, roses have been customarily planted in vineyards because they provide assistance to promote the growing of healthy grapevines for various reasons. So this also speaks to Mary's supportive role in leading us to Christ. And finally, roses have simply been traditionally associated with Mary. This is a flower that's associated with Mary um, from a lot of different sources or for a lot of different reasons. And one of those is in 
some apparitions. And one of those apparitions where we saw roses associated with Mary is the title that you're going to talk about next, Scott. In America, the next title is probably the most well-known of the ones on our list. It is Our Lady of Guadalupe. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with the basics. In 1531, a devout 57-year-old widower and peasant farmer named Juan Diego is on his way to Mass on December 9th when he has a vision of the Blessed Virgin Mary atop Tepeyac Hill. The hill had been home previously to a temple of the human sacrificing Aztecs. Mary requests Juan to visit the local bishop and ask for a shrine to be built on the site. The bishop listens to the petition delivered by Juan, but opts not to build the shrine. Later, Mary again appears on the hill to Juan and again makes her request. So, Juan visits the bishop, who still says no, but at least this time the bishop asks for a sign. But the next morning, Juan does not return to the bishop with a sign, nor does he return to the hill. Instead, he stays home with his uncle, Juan Bernardino, who has fallen ill. After a few days, Juan Diego leaves home to seek a priest to administer the last rites to his uncle, who at this point is pretty much on death's doorstep. And Juan Diego deliberately avoids the hill, so Mary won't stop him in his task. But apparently heavenly visitors are not confined to Tepeyac Hill. So she appears to him and instructs him to climb to the top of the hill to pick flowers, which are not supposed to grow in the cold of December, and tells him this will be the sign for the bishop. So Juan Diego ascends the hill, finds the abundant flowers, picks them, places them in his tilma, and travels again to see the bishop. When Juan opens the tilma, the flowers fall out, and the now famous image of Our Lady Guadalupe suddenly appears on the tilma. At the same time, the Blessed Virgin appears to Juan's uncle and miraculously cures him. While the history of the event is fascinating, it's some of the other details that I'd like to share, which is why I chose Our Lady of Guadalupe as one of the titles for this podcast episode. The location, the timing, and the image. The name of the location of Guadalupe comes from the word Cuatlasupe, meaning the one who crushes the serpent. Choosing to appear at Cuatlasupe seems to be a clear allusion to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and thy seed and her seed, she will crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. The timing of the 1531 apparition is also significant. In the early 16th century, the long-lingering heresies of the Cathars, Albigensians, Waldensians, John Wycliffe, and Jan Hus had exploded into the full-blown Protestant movement. In 1530, the Augsburg Confession was issued. In 1534, King Henry VIII's Act of Supremacy was promoted. And in 1536, John Calvin's Institutes were put forth. With the Catholic faith under spiritual assault in Western Europe, not to mention physical assault from Turks in the East, the Blessed Virgin Mary intervened. After her visit to Juan Diego at Guadalupe, conversions to the Catholic faith in the New World really began to flourish. And finally, the details of the image itself are of interest. The cactus fiber tilma, which is supposed to have about 30-year shelf life, still exists intact 500 years later. Those who were in the room with Juan Diego are visible in the reflection in the eyes of the image of Mary on the tilma. By standing on the crescent moon, Mary is symbolically crushing the Aztec religion. And her mantle with stars matches the constellation in the sky on the day of the apparition. And not to mention 500 years later, people still aren't sure how the image appeared 
on the tilma. One other interesting historical bit about the image is the question or controversy about Mary's crown. If you look at most photographs of the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe on the tilma, you'll notice they tend to cut off right above the head. It's an odd place to crop an image. If you can find a photograph where the top is not artificially cropped, you can spot the faint remnants of a crown on the Virgin's head. In the late 19th century, this crown was removed for reasons unknown. There's some debate whether the original image of 1531 had a crown or if a crown was a later edition painted onto the image, but regardless, about a hundred and so years ago, this crown was removed. And given in recent decades the influx of Latin American immigrants to the United States, including from Mexico, Our Lady of Guadalupe increasingly popular in this country as well, not just Central and South America. And it's back to this country that we go for the next title. Uh, actually, if you move north from Mexico across the Gulf, you reach the state of Louisiana and the patroness of Louisiana is Our Lady of Prompt Sucker. Now, this is sucker, S-U-C-C-O-R, so not the kind that your son likes to suck on, Scott. But um, sucker, the older term meaning help, basically. Our Lady of Prompt Help or Prompt Assistance. The National Shrine of Our Lady of Prompt Sucker is in New Orleans, and this is an image of relatively recent provenance. It was created in the early 19th century by the Ursulines, the Ursuline nuns of New Orleans, in gratitude for favors that they'd received. And just after it was created, there were a number of miracles that were associated with it. Uh, the biggest one right after the image was created um, was the saving of the convent, the Ur Ursuline convent from a great fire that broke out in New Orleans, in New Orleans in 1812. And then a few years later, the Ursuline nuns also attributed um, another miracle to Our Lady of Prompt Sucker, which was the victory of American forces over the British at the Battle of New Orleans. This was the famous battle that catapulted uh, Andrew Jackson to fame, eventually to the presidency. It occurred in 1815, and an outnumbered American force uh, defeated the British and the nuns. The Ursuline nuns had been praying for them during the night. They were praying to their patroness, Our Lady of Prompt Sucker. The devotion was formally approved by Pope Pius IX later in the 19th century, and they still have a memorial mass every year, if I'm not mistaken, in New Orleans at the Shrine of Our Lady of Prompt Sucker to commemorate the victory of Andrew Jackson in 1815. And that brings us to our final title of the episode. One thing, Kevin, I'd like to comment on real quick. I know of the Battle of New Orleans through a 1960s song by Johnny Horton, but I don't remember him mentioning Our Lady of Prompt Secour. My parents had the, um, the, the LP, the record of Johnny Horton. So that was a song that I grew up with, The Battle of New Orleans, one of my favorites growing up. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think Johnny Horton was aware of the Ursula Nunn side of, of the story. Speaking of the Battle of New Orleans, the next title involves a battle, a spiritual battle, Virgo Potens. This is another Latin title like Mater Dei. Virgo potens literally means virgin powerful and is often translated as virgin most powerful. So how is Mary the most powerful virgin? As the spouse of the Holy Spirit and as the mater dei, the mother of God, Mary has a very close and unique relationship with the triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 
That makes her an incredibly powerful intercessor, one who can even win sea battles at Lepanto over the Ottoman Turks. Latria, meaning praise, is offered to God, while Dulia, meaning honor, is offered to the saints with him in heaven. Mary has the distinction of hyperdulia beyond the regular saints because of this close relationship with God and this powerful intercession. And this is why many undertake Marian consecration, usually under the prayers from de Montfort or Maximilian Kolbe, and in spiritual warfare, exorcists often rely on Mary, invoking her name and praying the rosary, seeking deliverance from the demonic. And looking back at the location of Quatlesupe, it is Mary who will crush the head of the serpent. St. Bonaventure shared two powerful lines regarding this most powerful virgin. First, Mary alone, above all creatures, is most powerful with God. And two, men do not fear a powerful, hostile enemy as the powers of hell fear in the name and protection of Mary. Amen to that. The power of Mary in intercession, a fitting way to conclude this first episode. Thank you for joining us. Hope you've enjoyed it. Hope you've learned something. As has already been made clear, we're not uh, going to shy away from, in this history podcast, after all, we're not going to shy away from the historical language of the, of the church, including Latin. And so we wanted to end each episode with a prayer, the glory be, but we're going to do that in the historic language of Western Christianity, Catholicism. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritui Sancto. Sicuturat in principio et nunc et semper et in secula seculorum. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at catholichistorytrek at gmail.com.